Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. So first and foremost, I have to apologize for the lack of episode last week. This is the first week I've missed an episode. I, I had it kind of ready to go, but I was checking with the, my guest to make sure that I could release it before I did, and so, so that's why it's late. I'm gonna work on making sure that doesn't happen in the future. But I, I should hear back from them soon, and so I should be able to release that episode this week or next week, as long as as well as uh, the episode that was normally scheduled for next week. So you should get all the episodes you were promised just a little bit later than expecting, uh, and and you'll notice that things are out of order because this episode is the ninth episode and the last episode, the eighth episode, was also a research recap. So I have two research recaps in a row because because my schedule was a little messed up. So again, apologies, and we should be back to normal starting uh, after these next two interviews in a row. So I went ahead and published this podcast and website broadly uh, two weeks ago on that that Monday and uh, it that was fun I didn't get that much traction uh, but I, I did get some which was neat I uh, let's give you some some summary my the number of subscribers people subscribe to the podcast on like iTunes or whatever um, grew from 50 right after I launched it to 130 so I don't know how accurate that number is but that seems ridiculously high. In total, I've had 156 different people listening to the podcast, uh, and 403 episodes have been downloaded. And then the website um, analytics, I think the most interesting number is that I have 245 monthly active users, 35 weekly active users, and six daily active users. Uh, This is very exciting to me that I have even a single person, let alone five, people other than me that come to my website every day. So I think that means that, well, what I hope that means is that they're like using it to help inspire their own researcher or something like that, these other five people. So that's pretty cool. So before I go deep into what's kept me busy these past two weeks, I want to preface this with... um, I did a lot the last two weeks. I spent much more than the allotted 15 or 20 hours doing research. I I kind of overshot things and I spent a lot of time, maybe like 30 hours a week or or even 40 doing research over each week over the past two weeks. So this episode is gonna be longer and more filled, I think, than the other research recaps, except maybe for the first one where I recapped a year of work. So in, in this episode may seem kind of scattered and hard to follow. I apologize in advance. Uh, you can go to my website and do the page for this episode or the page for me thinking through how to structure this episode on, in my journal uh, to, to kind of see how I outline it and more details about each topic that I only touch on in this episode. So hopefully that, that helps you get through this episode if you really want to understand where my brain's at. Without further ado, let me tell you about uh, what's been going on this week. So, towards the end of uh, the prior two-week cycle, I 
did a deep dive into this guy, Jamie Brandon, who used to work at Eve, now does his own thing with other people, but, but kind of on his own. And um, his journal, his development journal for one of his projects, Imp, was what inspired my own journal and a lot and, and other parts of this project. So I owe a lot to him and, and I was really excited to get to read everything he's ever written and I did and, and that was great. One of the things he recommended is this book called Peak, which is about basically Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. So the, so the researchers who developed the research that Malcolm Gladwell misinterpreted and misexplained, so he wrote his own book, it's called Peak, and it talks about how to get better at anything through deliberate practice. And it was very inspiring and empowering for me to read this book. Because I wanted to believe these things anyways, that anyone could get as good as anyone else at anything. But I didn't really have the, the data. I didn't have like a scientist behind me, but, but now I do. And um, I was really excited about that book. And it had two impacts on, my, on this project. The, the first one is it inspired me to get a teacher, like a mentor of some sort who could I could check in with on a regular basis and they give me sort of meta feedback about how to structure my research and, and things I should be thinking about. So, you know, it would be a dream if someone like Alan Kay or Brett Victor would, would want to take on that role, you know, I, I guess I'd have to structure it in a way that it wouldn't be too, too much of an imposition, you know, but I, but I don't, I don't need, you know, I, maybe I could find someone else who, who, who's, who's less busy uh, who'd, who'd want to do that for me. So that's something that I'm on the lookout for. And then the second thing that this book inspired is a more of a debugging mindset about everything in my life, including this research project. So the things that aren't related to this research project, I, I set up a separate page on my website, stevekraus.com slash debugging for me to like help debug all the things in my life I'm trying to get better at, like eating healthier, stuff like that. Um, but then more, more relevant to this podcast, I um, have spent a lot of time thinking about my schedule and the way I'm doing research. And as, I, as I've said before, I didn't like how I was going to bed whenever I wanted, waking up whenever I wanted, doing research whenever I wanted. Uh, I, like, I generally structured into days. So I had like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were generally research days, and I did research the whole day, and then Tuesday and Thursday were meeting and email days. It was working okay, but I was finding that it was hard to really stick to Monday, Wednesday. Like on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I would like kind of not actually stick to research that day because other random things would, would pop up and I would just do those things instead. So I, I, was pro I had problems, I was thinking about things. And so uh, eventually I decided to like meditate on it a little bit more in my journal and I, I came to this new idea where I would wake up every morning at seven o'clock and then from 7.30 to 10.30 a.m. every morning, Monday through Friday, I would do my research. And in order to do this, I'd have to go to bed at 11 o'clock every night and I, and I would drink coffee every morning to wake up. And so I tried so I tried this experiment out for one week last week, Monday through Friday, and it worked. I actually stuck to it, which I'm a little surprised, but also very proud of. And I really liked it. I, I, I like the feeling of it's 10 o'clock, it's 10.30, and now I have the whole day. Like I, I accomplished the thing I, I set up to accomplish. And I don't check my email before then, I don't get distracted, I, I do my research and then I move on. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it sounds rigid, but it, I, it's, I found that it's pretty flexible because if I need to skip a morning or uh, I don't have enough time to do a full three hours on a given morning, I can just decrease the amount of time one morning and 
increase it the appropriate amount another morning. So the amount of time stays constant as long as I, I move it around in, in, in this way. One thing that I, that I know I need to think about still is uh, taking a, a, a week off, for example, or, or more than a week off, because I think I might want to. It's, it, it feels a little bit like there's too much momentum here, uh, which, which is a good thing. It's, it's the opposite problem I had before where I didn't have enough momentum. Um, but I'm sure I could just decide I'm taking a week or two off and put it in my journal, put it on this, this podcast, and no one's going to call me out for it, uh, except for me. Um, I'll just have to decide when that is. Another thing I want to do is think more precisely about my time, because I'm kind of ballparking it. Oh, 15 hours here, five hours there, and, I th- and things take more time than I'm, I'm giving them credit for, and so I'm ending up spending a lot more time doing things than I'm allotting which isn't bad, you know, I want to be spending time on this project, but uh, it's just not realistic, and so I think I'm doing more work than I want to be doing, or at the very least, I should have a more accurate view of how things are. So I should, I'm, I'm, I want to do that soon. So I had two fun calls this week. The first one was with Jamie Brandon, which was really fun, because he's such an inspiration for me, so we talked a lot about the things he's working on, which I don't want to go into too much here, but I have some notes about that that I hope he'll let me share. And then right after that call, I had a call with Dan Scanlon, who I met through my co-founder. And, and uh, he's, we, we, we kept in touch a little bit, uh, and he's been working on future programming things as well. What was really exciting to... Uh, to hear about from him was that he listened to a few of these episodes when he was on a long drive. I've listened to uh, most of the episodes now. I was driving for like four and a half hours yesterday. Neat. So I went through, yeah, like episode uh, two through I think four or five, and then I just listened uh, to most of uh, the most recent one as well. Awesome! Wow, thank you. That's that means a lot. I I don't have as you can imagine. I, I just want, yeah, I wanted to get caught up on like you know where your like what the speed of your research is and um, you know what lens you're kind of viewing this world through. Yeah, um, well, yeah. That I guess that that in theory uh, will speed up this uh, this conversation a, a, a great deal. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, uh, that means a lot to me. Uh, I don't. I don't have too many people. I don't have too many listeners at the moment. So, uh, so that's it's a big deal to me. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it's just the beginning, and I, I do think that um, you know what you're doing. If everyone else who was thinking about the kinds of problems that you're thinking about uh, would contribute um, it publicly in an open manner, um, I think things could progress. Uh, a lot more quickly, and there could be a lot more borrowing of ideas. Good idea. Uh, while we were talking, he helped me articulate the state of my current research, particularly as it pertains to stream sheets, and what I did over the last two weeks. Let me play that clip. Yeah. Um, so, I I don't know uh, how much you here heard me blather on about my, a prototype. A prototype idea I have that I'm calling stream sheets. Yeah, yeah, I've heard uh, at least like 20 minutes worth of that. I think over the, a few episodes. Great. Okay. So Very interesting. Uh, sweet. Thanks. Uh, so um, what I re- so I spent um, a few hours on Monday of, the, of this past uh, not not 
yesterday, but the one before, trying to prototype it. And um, yeah. pretty soon into it, uh, I, was a, I realized that it's very, very similar to Cycle.js, which it was inspired by. Um, yeah. And so, do you, are you familiar with Cycle.js at all? Yes. Cool. So. Andre Stoltz. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm so obsessed with that guy. So, anyways, um, yeah. he. Uh, so, I realized that it basically is Cycle.js, and like, because I, I was thinking about like ways to like um, make the prototype more and more, make it more to smaller, smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually I realized that um, the way to prototype something like this is to do it in text. And, and so I, I, like, I, I started putting various parts of the prototype into text as opposed to a UI. And then I was like, wait, wait, what would it look like if the entire uh, thing, the entire user interface to this prototype was text? Oh, wait, that exists. It's called Cycle.js. Great. Okay. So knowing that was like a big insight. And so now I'm thinking that my actual compile, compile target for this prototype is Cycle.js code. And then... And, and then like I so and it's like two way like I can import Cycle.js to this thing I can export any code from here to Cycle.js code, um, and so I like I, anyways I, I have a lot of thoughts like on, in that direction, and uh, and yeah. so under um, yeah. What limit are you trying to push uh, with that prototype? Like, what do you feel like uh, is uh, like the imposition or uh, the short uh, coming of? Um, traditional environments or... Got it. Uh, What's the problem I'm trying to solve? Whatever environment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So I, ha I have a lot of answers to that question. The, the first thing to mention is that the way I came to this prototype is specifically trying to think about a problem first and then a solution. Because often... Cause, anyway, I was watching an Alan Kay video that like talked about how people often focus on existing solutions and how to improve on them and how that only leads to incremental progress. And so I was like, okay... Like stop, stop thinking about that. Think about like pie in the sky. If you could design things from the ground up, what would you want? And so what I wanted is um, to make it like the, the metaphor that stuck in my brain is like, wouldn't it be neat if any app you were using anywhere, your phone, the computer, anywhere, you could there was just like a corner at the top right that was like a peel back type of thing, and you could just pull on that corner and then just see the code like quote one layer of abstraction down below, and and kind of see how it works, tweak with things. Put the, put the first layer back on, see how those changed, and, and continually pull back layers one at a time and kind of change things. You can pull back the layer of just one component, you can pull back the layer of the entire screen. Like the, the, what, I, what I want and the, the, the problem I want to solve is that like people who use applications to be able to like modify those applications without like leaving, going to, to another website like GitHub, installing a bunch of software, like spending hours and hours like hunting through files and folders. Um, like, I, like all that to me is garbage. Like I, the, pro, that, the problem I want to solve was I want to increase the surface area of, of the uh, intersection of, of the people who can who use an app who can also modify that app. Uh, Got so, it. So, so that was that was my problem that I was trying to solve. And um, okay, what, so how do you translate from the top level of that edit, editing interface the uh, like sheet um, yeah. into the user interface? Yeah. Okay. Great. Great question. So, all the, all of these questions and problems are like very speculative. But where I ended up is, um, why not just make everything a spreadsheet? And so at the top level, it could be anything. Like so, everything is just a stream, and streams 
are just um, observable values. So anything, can, any value that changes over time is a stream. And so if, and just like what you're saying, like if like the inputs are abstract data types and the outputs are abstract data types, like it's extensible. Like Andre Stoltz says the same thing about streams. Like if the inputs, are, if like the inputs are streams and the outputs are streams, like like it's it, like it's just anything. So um, the like the bottommost layer in my head is like is like the event stream of like of like everything that's ever happened that your system is aware of. But but it, but could be, but basically any event stream can be like the input, and then the output of the system. If, if what you want is, is HTML, then the output is just a stream of HTML. And, um, and like, you know, the reason I like spreadsheets uh, as a way to visualize things is streams are, like, they are just observable, they're just values that change over time. Um, but what I like about spreadsheets is that you could see the, like, past values. They're just, like, they're just higher rows in the spreadsheet. Uh, I, I, okay, so, but then m most things that we want to talk about are objects, and, and objects are really just rows. So you could just have a column that's like, you, so you could just have a row of like, so each HTML element is a row, and it has children rows. Like, I don't know, may, maybe visually d describing HTML in a, in a spreadsheet table will be super unwieldy and hard, or hard to build. Like, I don't know. Th that's not the core assumption that I'm trying to test right now. Um, so, like, one of the first things I decided to do was to, um, like, put all of the, the other spreadsheets in scope for a, like, React JSX style function that, that returns HTML. So, basically, I want to, like, the, the core thing I'm trying to figure out is whether or not the spreadsheet metaphor is, a, is an intuitive way to do stream programming. Um, that's like the core assumption I want to test now, and then l later down the line, I'll test whether like editing HTML in, in a tabular format is is neat or not. I, I don't know, because um, like at the end of the day, like something like more WYSIWYG is, would be better anyways. So that's not the core assumption. Um, the, the core thing I'm trying to test, where like the, the sub problem of a sub problem of a sub problem that I'm working on right now, is I see CycleJS as a really neat. CycleJS has a, a really a lot of neat implications if you write your application in it. However, in practice, I found it incredibly difficult to write applications in CycleJS. Uh, and so, so what I'm trying to test is due to the, some breakdown around uh, street programming. So yeah, so like the, uh, one way to put it is um, so even once I like wrapped my head around how streams work which took like a, a handful of hours, which for someone like me who like has a lot of mental representations and is able to assimilate new models quickly, that, that says a lot. That, that, that took me like a number of hours to wrap my head around it. Uh, that means it'll take like months for, for someone who's new to programming, um, I think, or, or like weeks, or whatever. Um, so so that, that's the first roadblock. But then even once I got my, wrapped my head around the mental model and I, I, like, I had the list of CycleJS primitives pulled up on my screen and I was like, okay, I want this thing to happen. Which, which one of these primitives or which, you know, is what I want. And it took me a while to figure out the right one. And then like, even once I had the right one, like getting the syntax to work and like imagining my head what, what the new stream looked like and like debugging whether or not it did what I wanted. Like it was just all, it, it was just very, very, very slow going. So um, the, the thought is that, so um, uh, another thing to mention is that CycleJS has this really great visual tool called in the CycleJS dev tools where once you've already written a CycleJS application, it'll visualize it as a data stream, and it's beautiful. It like visualizes your entire application as a graph from top to bottom. 
And that's a, that's the reason you use CycleJS because when you when you structure your data in a stream way, um, you can it, it's just beautiful. It, like like this is the reason to use CycleJS because it organizes your code in a logical way. Um, yeah. But but um, that's only after you've written code. That helps you understand code and debug code, but that doesn't help you write it in the first place. And so, what I'm excited about now is creating a user interface f for CycleJS that's better than like typing out the commands. And um, I found, and Andre Stoltz has like kind of hinted that this is something that he'd be interested in, in working on. So I sent him an email. We, we're talking. He said he he's really busy over the next few weeks for different conferences he's like speaking at. So, um, but. On Friday, uh, we we decided we were. I'm gonna reach out to him again on Friday, and hopefully, he'll give me some good, some some much needed feedback on this idea. So so that's where I'm at there. Um, but before I move on and tell you what I've been working on in the meanwhile, because I've been waiting for Andre, I, I want to like pause for questions or comments. So I invited him as well as Jamie to the New York City Future of Coding Meetup Group and Slack. And then f one last thing, I'm gonna send you. Um, there's a like a meetup group that that I'm organizing in New York for future programming people. So. I will get you on the Slack group and invited to all those events because you're moving to Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Um, have you had any yet? Yeah, we've uh, had like three or so meetings so far. We had one yesterday. Nice. Right. That's awesome. How many people come out so far? I think the first one was like three or four people. The, f the second one was like 10 or 11. The third one was even more. And then this last one, we made a mistake and did it on Labor Day and it was just me and one other guy. So. Uh, so, uh, well, yeah, but, but, uh, anyways, um, I'm excited to have you at one of those soon. Awesome. Yeah. I'd, I'd be happy to be there. So, uh, we'd love to have more members. So if you're, if you'd be interested in joining, please reach out, let me know and I'll add you right away. So really with the Alan K deep dive, the more I progressed, the more silly I felt about not having done this sooner. So much of my research has, has been inspired by Alan Kay that to just read a few of his things, watch a few of his videos, and feel like I got a sense for it was just silly uh, because there was so much gold there. There's so much that, that I could see where I was retrace, retracing his steps when I could have just been learning from his mistakes and moving forward. So that's like the, the general theme of the past two weeks. I was just, I was just in heaven, just reading all these amazing papers and being inspired by all of his amazing ideas. One of the things that, that uh, I helped, that it helped me see was how the like genealogy of ideas is laid out. I kind of thought that it went from, for someone once explained to me that Scratch was a baby of, of Seymour Papert and Alan Kay. And that made sense to me at the time. That still kind of makes sense. But now I see that it's more of a linear progression from Piaget to Papert to Kay to Resnick to Victor. Like it kind of goes more in a line. Uh, at least that's how I see the line. Uh, I'm sure there, there are people in between there that I'm missing. And, and it's not really a line, it's, it's much more messy than that. But uh, at least the people who get credit for, it, for these ideas in my mind, the, pe the people who are stand-ins for the web, are, are, that, that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, another thing I was really struck by in this genealogy of ideas is how many of his ideas and the and uh, Seymour Papert's and and um, Brad Victor's ideas were influenced by Montessori, Marshall McLuhan, and Neil Postman, uh, people that I also uh, am really 
excited about it. I didn't quite realize that Alan Kay was into those people, which now seems silly, because of, of course he is. I also didn't realize how much Alan Kay was influenced by Seymour Papert, particularly to create things for children. I didn't realize that small talk was meant to be a language for children, and then only ended up being a language for adults because it, you know he couldn't make it better. Like you know, the goal was for it to be for kids, and then it it was good enough for adults, and they just ran with it. I think Dan Ingalls just ran with it, um, and Alan Kay, I think, it was a little shame ashamed of it. And um, a, a, a clip, uh, like a quote from a few weeks ago in this podcast, Samantha John was talking about how Brett and Alan really want to get things right because for them, the ultimate tragedy isn't not having anyone use your thing. It's that having everyone use your thing and it being a bad thing. And I think where that comes from potentially is from <laughs> bad design ideas in GUIs and in small talk that have like now pervaded software in, a, in like a bad form as opposed to, you know, keeping the results of, of small talk secret and developing them more further before releasing things. So, so that gives me some more context to where that worldview comes from, wanting to get things right. I spent a lot of time with the STEPS project. It's, it's I think the way it's referred to is capital S-T-E-P-S. And it's a really interesting project that they, that they, they, Alan Kay led in modern times. It's, I think the project began like in 2008, something or some, sometime around then, and it got a, a, a grant, like I think it was like $5 million or something over, over a number of years to develop it. And it, I, 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 first of all, I couldn't believe how similar in goals this project was to my goals generally of making software more understandable at every layer of abstraction and, and make it so that people could modify things at any layer of abstraction. Um, it, it also has a lot to do with Paul Chisano's notion of getting rid of apps, having like appless computing where there's a shared data model but, and you can just compute over all of your data and, and apps are really just playlists of different computations. So, so that's what the Steps Project kind of is. It's it's redefining programming, and the way they explain it is that, that the way I just explained it is how I think of it in my world. But the way they explain it is, instead of having hundreds of thousands or millions of lines of code from an operating system, a kernel, the whole thing, instead you replace that whole thing with beautiful abstractions and do it in twenty thousand lines of of really good code. And they they basically did it. I I think there were, it depends on how you count lines of code, but. In my book, they they really, they did it. They they built a, a whole GUI interface thing in a, in a very small amount of code with really beautiful abstractions. And where the punchline is is that they did it all with reactivity. So they, and like something very very similar to the Cycle JS or React JS architecture, but they were way ahead of their time on this one. Because like React JS was only just being made. So and a number of the ways in which they it, what I would call made mistakes or made interesting or like bad design choices, like it's hard to blame them for it because reactive programming wasn't even that old by the time they, they were doing it. They were mostly working off of Elliot Connell's work with functional reactive programming, which was under the 90s, you know. So I was, I, I was shocked to see how much, 
how similar our ideas were. Um, and that they were using streams in order to enable the same goals that I was trying to enable with stream sheets. Wacky. Uh, so I spent, so there, I, I skipped most of the progress reports on this research project because it's just, it's just too much reading. But I did read the final report, which wasn't that long actually. M most of the final report was the, these, these addendums, these, these other two papers that it references. One is on K-Script, the language they built this whole system in, and then K-World, which is the, like, uh, the framework that they, they built things in. And so those were really, really interesting, very fascinating papers, and uh, that's where they explain how the reactivity of the system works, and they, the language is kind of like CoffeeScript. It's, it's all very, very interesting. And it really, to me, begs the question of what if they knew about Cycle.js before they did this system? Because there are a number of places in which they have, where they break their model and they, they, don't, they, they don't follow the stream metaphor to the end. They have like an imperative set where you can just, you can just like, basically, I think Andre Seltz would call it like shamefully set. It's, it's, it's just not elegant or mathematically abstract. And they explain why they think that you need to do things like that. But I think, at least the impression I get from talking to Andre Stoltz is that, no, 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 you never need to do that. You can always describe things elegantly with pure mathematical streams. And so what I wonder is, can, can I use the stream sheets and Cycle.js ideas to, to really accomplish what the steps paper was trying to accomplish? And I don't know, I, it remains to be seen. But now that I know that this project exists, as I run into problems about bootstrapping the system and, and building up the layers, I, like I know I can come back to this, these papers for inspiration and, and pointers to other papers that could answer my questions. It was really a great find. And it's just hilarious how so much of my, my worldview and my research is inspired by Brett Victor and Alan Kay. And I was like, well, you know, those guys are cool and inspired me a lot, but you know, I'm gonna go do my own thing now. As opposed to these guys inspired me, <laughs> I gotta go read everything they ever did. And I know it's intimidating because they've done a lot, but you know, I really, I really have to. So this is why I have decided that I'm going no further, doing no other research until I read everything I can find on Brett Victor. And so I started that a little bit. Uh, mostly I've only gotten through like his personal stuff from when he was 23, which is my age. And it's, it's uh, really interesting and endearing. He, he you know, I, I almost don't want to say it in public because it's like, you know, um, personal stuff, but it is on the internet. Anyone can see it. So I guess I can share. Um, he, he was like going through a bad breakup with his girlfriend and and he, you know, he was sad and, and like trying to find direction in life. And it, it's really interesting to get to hear about Brett Victor's whole, you know, heroic journey of where, from there to where he is now, where, where I think is such an impressive place to be. So, so I'm going to do that. I'm going I'm to do the same thing I did with Alan Kay with Brett Victor. Give, give him maybe, it might take a, the same amount of time, a whole two weeks, maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. I'm, I'm, but I'm sticking it out because um, I have a feeling that more kernels of gold, just like I found with the steps and K-Script and K-World, that, that so directly inspires and helps my current prototype, I think I'm going to find that uh, if I do the same thing with Brett Victor.
so somewhere in the middle of doing this Alan K. Deep Dive, I was struck with inspiration to write about computer GUIs, overlapping windows, and optimal computer use strategies. So I wrote this, this essay, it just, it just kind of flowed out of me. And I figured, you know, it's kind of interesting, so I might as well read it right here on the podcast. As a computer user since the age of three, I have had ample opportunity over the last 20 years to develop better computer usage patterns. One of the most effective I've found is to never have any minimized windows, overlapping windows, or windows totally hidden behind other windows. Instead, I make liberal uses of tabs and split, screen, split screen. My default view is two windows side by side, each taking up half the screen. On a Chromebook, this is easy to set up with the use of alt left square bracket and alt right square bracket, which are shortcuts built in to send windows to the left and right of the screen respectively. On the left window, I pin a number of tabs to apps that I want to open that I want open throughout the day for constant use, like Spotify, Google Inbox, Google Calendar, and Slack. This pin makes it harder for me to accidentally close the tab, and also makes the tab seem more quote fundamental than a regular tab, which is more ephemeral, ephemeral in some ways. The left window usually has one non-pin tab on it, which represents the main task I'm working on at the moment. For example, when I was writing this, the tab is currently open to Cloud9, an online integrated development environment where I was typing this very journal entry. A moment ago, the tab was still on Cloud9, but in the slash links file, so I could take notes on a paper I was reading in the right tab. Similarly, if I'm writing software, I'll have my code in the left window and the preview output for the code in the right window. If I need to Google things to debug my code, that will also be in the right window. In some occasions, I want one window to be full screen, in which case I'll put all my tabs onto the left window and hit Control Plus, which is the Chrome, Chromebook shortcut to making Windows full screen. I also try to do things in logical chunks. This means not leaving any task in a dirty state, such that if you threw my computer into a river, I wouldn't be upset or I wouldn't be upset at any lost work or effort. One common mistake I see people make is having more than a handful, like five, tabs open for long periods of time. This is a problem for two reasons. One, if your computer or web browser crashes and you lose all of those tabs, that is lost data because tabs, open tabs represent a list of, usually represent a list of links you want to look at. Number two, it makes your desktop more cluttered, which can then make your thinking more cluttered and it makes it difficult to find what you need. Similar, this is similar to having a mess in your room that you don't clean up. It's, uh, it's, it's like a common, psychological thing that, that cleaning up uh, a dirty room or dirty locker helps you just have less anxiety and more clear thinking. Thus, whenever I have more than five or, or whatever the amount of tabs I'm currently working with at the moment, whenever I have more than those open, I take the ones I'm not working on and copy and paste those links to an appropriate list or funnel or Trello or Booksmarks folder and then I close that tab. Another common mistake I see is to not save every logical change directly to a cloud service. Having a Chromebook makes, this, makes making this mistake harder, but still possible. This is similar, but less true for a Mac or PC that has Dropbox installed, because there are still so many ways to save things to disk 
and so much disk storage on normal computers that you might make the mistake of saving things not in the Dropbox folder. For example, if you're using uh, like a, an app like GarageBand, the default is to save those files in a specific place on your computer and you have to like, kind of monkey with things to make sure that it saves natively directly to the Dropbox folder. So I'm going to hit pause here. Occasionally it can be helpful to have more than two windows on the screen at the same time. I used to run into this when I was developing on my computer before I was using the Cloud9 IDE when I needed a third window on the screen in addition to my code editor and the code preview for the terminal. However, Cloud9 combines the terminal and code windows and, and even the preview window into one or two windows, so that's no longer a problem for me. Um, but I could definitely see a use case for having three or four windows on the screen at the same time. However, at no point is it useful to have windows overlapping each other. Given that I can resize the boundaries boundaries of windows to any rectangular shape and zoom in and out on their contents, I can always get a view of all the things I want without obscuring the contents of any other window. Side-by-side side, side side windows are more than enough. It is not only that overlapping windows aren't helpful, but they are also harmful because their excessive expressibility allows the users to put their windows in a suboptimal, disorganized fashion. I think it becomes even, even worse than just disorganized. It doesn't, it, having windows that are obscured or minimized is harmful because it doesn't allow the user to realize that some applications are open and draining computer resources. I was always, it always annoyed me that when you would uh, hit the X button on applications in a Mac, it wouldn't actually close the application. You would have to like make sure to quit the application, which is different than closing. And unless you were like an advanced Mac user, you would like you you would end up with all these applications open and running, taking up CPU time and not even realize it. Even worse than that, though, is that you could have an application open with data in an unsaved state. And I think this has happened to everybody, where you like you ha you type some stuff in a Word document and you minimize it. You do, and then days later you you forget about it and it's still open in an unsafe state and then your computer crashes or you want to shut it down or, or something and then right then you have to like figure out if you want to save the changes or not it's like so disconnected from the changes you actually made and oftentimes you hit the don't save button or or the app crashes and you lose all that data which is so sad so um not allowing that by saying you know either either you're working on it now or it's closed and the data is all saved to the cloud those are the only two options there's no like, it's invisible, but there's dirty state, middle case. So I just wanna say there is a special case where you'd like to do some processing on data in a minimized window while you work on other applications in visible windows. However, even in this case, I think the correct way to do it is to upload the task to some web processing service and then close the window and then have that service email you a link to the finished project when it's done. I was a, I, I did this once with a um, it was an audio processing service, and and that that's how they handled that task, and I think that was perfect. You know the the Chromebook model of applications hasn't totally taken off yet. It's still hard to do some things on a on a Chromebook, especially if it's a lot of processing or you need a lot of storage. But I think it's only a matter of time until this is the way things go, and then it'll be easier to operate your computer in the quote correct way. 
So given that our goal is to complete tasks in logical chunks, one may inquire how we could design a computer interface to support such a workflow. So the first step could be helping the user think through the steps and sub-steps of their current action and organize them. I've described how this could be done in my WoofJS workflow prototype and write-up paper, which I talked about uh, a few podcasts back, and I also wrote about on my website, which you can find at futurecoding.org. So if the steps are stated precisely enough in some sort of programming language thing, upon finishing the step, this, the computer system itself could check to make sure that what you did meet, met the requirements for that step, that all unnecessary windows and data are cleaned up, and the appropriate outputs are saved to the cloud, etc. In this way, it would not only become possible but easy to travel back in time to any previous semantic state of your computer workflow and you'd be able to see how your project was constructed piece by piece. And it's the same for archaeologists or historians who want to see how, how you thought through certain things. You would never lose any work or data in this way and your, your path could be, your logical path through your app would be elucidated easily. Taking the idea of working in logical chunks to an extreme the ideal we could shoot for in theory is the ability to throw the user herself into the river and feel content that the con contents of her project are safely stored on the computer in an organized fashion. So for example, it would be less of a problem if George R. R. Martin died before completing the Game of Thrones because the, the current state of his brain would be preserved in this nested computer structure and, and someone else could kind of you know, pick up where he left off. It, it, you know, in an ideal world. Okay, so that's the end of my overlapping windows and computer optimal use strategies, logical chunk thing rant. There's one other idea that I have been developing over the past few years that I didn't quite think was relevant to my project of the future of coding. But the more I read Alan Kay, the more I feel like it is relevant. One of the, the reasons I think it's relevant is uh, in the steps project that I mentioned before, the, one of the examples that, that keeps coming up is that they have a, a, a bullet point in their example of what the system looks like, and it's like, what is science, or what is this thing called science? Which is, I just, I can't keep laughing at that. I just I can't stop laughing at that because I'm reading a book now called What is a Thing Called Science about um, the philosophy of science. And I think and it's, it's also relevant and it's all wrapped up in this idea of creating a medium for human thought or, or thinking thoughts that aren't thinkable or, or augmenting human thought. And yet building the future of coding is just kind of a subset of that. And, and it, it, it is a medium, but I think it could be much broader. And I don't know... It, if this means that I want to combine all these ideas into one ma like massively powerful language interface, that that's probably too much. It's more that, that it's relevant somehow, and I don't know what I'm going to do with that piece, but I'll, I'll just describe it a little bit so you know what I'm talking about when I refer to it later. So uh, the name I'm using right now is, is uh, Logic Hub. That's what I'm calling it, um, partially because it, it was, it's been inspired by GitHub in a lot of ways. So in short, Logic Hub is the repository for all human argumentation and evidence. The goal is to create the right structures 
such that humanity can bring its logical prowess to bear in the least biased way possible. As Karl Popper says, criticism is the root of all progress, and my dream is for a system like Logic Hub to transcend the printing press's limitation that necessitates the, that criticism be entirely separate from the content it's criticizing. More specifically, I want to unify and make canonical logic and argumentation so that we can have incredibly detailed, nested discussions about everything. And it's very structured too. So I, I can even imagine a paper, uh, I can even imagine a world in which scientific papers are written directly in this tool. And so are court cases and even bills in Congress. Because then we'd truly be able to fill Philip Morrison's vision, which I found this quote uh, earlier in Alan Kay's writings, that the evidence, the experience itself, and the argument that gives it order is what we need to share with one another and not just the, quote, unsupported final claim. Imagine a world in which we don't call each other names like global warming denier or environmentalist hippie, but where we can truly see the arguments, evidence, assumptions, and perspectives of one another through this structure. So th there are a few subtle details and key points. I, I thought this through a lot, but not, not nearly enough as I need to, but some of the key points that will help elucidate it is that you have a few different kinds of things. You have propositions, which are statements, and by default they are unsupported claims, and then you have arguments that support them. And then arguments are made up of more propositions. They can, they can reference other propositions in the system. And so when you, when you create a proposition, every word of the proposition has to link to a definition that, that, def that defines that proposition. And definitions, I guess, also recursively link to other definitions. So words are defined in terms of other words. And you may wonder about an infinite regress problem, but I don't think that's a problem, just like how dictionaries exist. Not a problem. They describe words in, ter in terms of other words. Um, so then, let's talk about how these things nest. So, I want the uh, confidence that we have in certain propositions to flow up and give more confidence towards, confidence towards propositions that depend on those propositions in their, in their arguments. So, uh, for example, if you have a top-level proposition A, um, and then, and then uh, the argument for A refers to proposition B, and, pro and proposition B has zero support, then, then that, that will weaken proposition A. But if proposition B has a lot of support, that'll strengthen proposition A. And so we'd want to have like some sort of number, like, like from, let's say, 0 to 100, representing the confidence in these things. And, and, and so that, then the question is, how do you structure it? So like how much should an increase in the confidence of proposition B affect the increase in confidence of proposition A? I, like, I don't know, maybe something like Bayes' theorem would help us here. People seem to, to think that's a useful way to update your confidence in propositions based on new evidence. Um, but I guess, j just to give you a sense of how I think about it, I would never want to ask people to vote, how much do you agree with this proposition? That's a poll. That's not what this is. I, the way I would want it to work 
is to have people play what I call the logic game. So you, you give them a top-level proposition and an argument. And that argument has a number of, of propositions that make it up. And I see, I see an argument as like a, a string of text where an, uh, a number of pieces of the text are underlined and those underlined pieces are propositions which you can click on and, and see the whole tree below them. And so, but you don't give them that whole tree. What you give them is the top level proposition and the argument below. And the argument contains the words that describe propositions but not, but not things below them. And so you, you say to the person, given that this argument, um, you, what, what you wanted to, to figure out is if this argument is 100% true, if this argument holds, to what degree does this argument support the proposition? If every part of the argument holds. And then, so like maybe this argument gives you 80% confidence, if, if everything in the argument is true, then you say, how much, uh, what percent of, of that confidence is, is, uh, is each of the propositions that make up the argument responsible for? And so you, you break down an argument based on how the, the pieces of it link together into this numerical structure so that when the children propositions get their ratings through the same process, you can have the confidence flow up towards the top. I have a lot more thoughts on this, um, but I don't want to go too much into it right now. I just want to let you know that, that this idea exists. Um, and I, and I, I am reading a lot of philosophy of science to help flesh it out. In particular, I'm reading Karl Popper, who doesn't really s seem to think, I, from, my, from my interpretation, doesn't seem to think that this idea could exist. Because he talks a lot about how defining definitions isn't that important and building theories up from the ground up with evidence isn't really how science is done. Science is done more uh, kind of messily. You know, as people shout out theories and, and they compete based on evidence and it's more haphazard than, than this logical structure I'm trying to build up. So hopefully through reading him and meditating on this more, I will have some more ideas for you on this later. So after I finished my Alan K. deep dive and sent him an email, I had one mostly full research day to start my Brett Victor deep dive. And at this point, I haven't found that much about software and user interface design. Mostly I've got to learn about Brett's life when he was 23 years old, the same age I am now. I got to see the lyrics to his parody hit single, Caltech Girl. I think I even found a link to him singing it, a cappella, and, and I got to hear about you know, all sorts of things where his mind is at and struggling with his direction in life, which is really interesting. So I look forward to continuing that soon, but as you'll hear in a second, I don't think I'm going to continue that right away. I think I'm going to put that the, the Brett Victor deep dive on pause because I had a call today with Andre Stoltz. 
And if you listen to this podcast, you know all about Andre Schultz. Um, and even if you don't listen to this podcast, you may know all about him because he is wonderful. He is um, the creator of a user interface library called Cycle.js, which is inspired by uh, React, JS, and Elm. It has the idea of uh, unidirectional data flow, but it takes this idea to an extreme with the idea of streams. So it, so it really, uh, I, I've never seen the ideas of streams taken so extremely, pun not intended. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Cycle.js, but basically the idea is you get rid of all side effects and everything becomes very mathematical, very pure, and, and ultimately um, what's so great about Cycle.js is you can visualize your data as a, your app as a data flow diagram from, uh, from top to bottom, one directional, no, no arrows go back up in the, in the wrong direction. And it's amazing. So anyways, um, I got Andre Salt on the phone this morning at uh, 7 a.m. Eastern time. I don't know where he is in the world, but I think uh, it, is, it is not Eastern time because he sent me an email at like 4, 4 a.m. Eastern time this morning. So I had a lot of questions for him, and I don't think I have time in this episode to go through everything he told me, but I'll give you a, a quick overview. So first he explained what he meant and piqued my interest when he said Cycle.js DevTools as IDE. So what the reason I was so excited about seeing that bullet on a slide a talk that I didn't even listen to because I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't know it was, it was on the internet. So what excited me about seeing that bullet is, I, I began to realize that cycle J, that stream sheets, my prototype idea, is basically a GUI, a thin layer of abstraction on top of CycleJS. So I was thinking maybe Andre had had a similar idea, and that there would be some room for collaboration. So it turns out, so it turns out this guy, Nick Bostrom, who, I, who actually I think I had uh, come in contact with on the internet before, he had helped me with getting Psycho.js to run uh, at some point. Um, so it's, it sounds like he and Andre have this relationship that I, that, you know, that I, I kind of was hoping to, ha to get. Um, I think uh, Nick has this idea for a Psycho.js visual editor and he and Andre are gonna work together on something like that. And it, and it, it makes sense, their vision is very similar. My, my vision is, 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 is a lot more speculative and ambitious than, than what they're shooting for. But I'll, I'll let Andre talk some more about that. I'll link to you a good blog post that came out recently uh, about our core team in CycleJS. So uh, Nick is also in our core team, Nick Johnston, and uh, he was basically being in interviewed in this blog post. And there uh, he mentioned a bit like his vision for like things that he wanted to build and then he started building other things and he ended up uh, hitting the same need for a visual programming editor. So uh, like more towards the end of the blog post, you can find uh, one of the videos in the conference that we, we had. Uh, he gave a talk there. Uh, I'll link that as well here. And there he starts talking about the need of having a, an editor called uh, Bonsai editor is the name he gave, and I can also <laughs> give links to that 
he has a bunch of projects, and one of those projects was his bonsai editor. Nice. Uh, and anyway, like uh, his vision was very similar to my vision, uh, and that's what I was. That's what I meant with like sort of uh, converting the dev tools to an editor, because we could join efforts of what Nick is doing plus what I'm doing in the dev tools and sort of get the dev tools code base and sort of shape it to be also an editor, you know, or basically get common pieces from the dev tools that could still be only in dev tools, but also use those other common, uh, the common pieces for other projects. Cool, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. Let me link those as well. Uh, bonsai editor, this is very early stuff. Uh, it basically, there's nothing there. I mean, there's some sketches, but then there's a stream tree, which is a bit more uh, like in shape. Stream tree is basically a way that uh, Nick found to draw a diagram as ASCII art, uh, which is you know visual programming, but just embedded inside a template stream. So that's what also what he talked about in his uh, conference talk. Cool. So these things yeah. are being made. That's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, of course, we want to find time to build this stuff, but um, right now it it doesn't look like we're build, building it because we we sort of paused stuff to fix other things. Mm. Yeah. So the the ASCII art thing is pretty interesting. I mean, it's. It's not the most convenient way of writing code, but uh, the visual aspect of it is pretty cool. So, uh, as I was saying, uh, like we want to get to that point, but we we found like some other things in between that we want to solve because basically you don't want the visual editor to be just a summary of your code. You want it to be the full code. Yeah. Um, because you know, there's UML for summarizing code, and we don't want that. We want the the graph to be code. Yeah. Uh, so right now we're focusing on like other minor aspects, so that everything can be visual and not just some things. Got it. So yeah. what? Uh, can you be more concrete? What What are those things that you're working on so that everything can be visual? Yeah, I can give a link as well. But what we found. Uh, this is something that we found when we were discussing in the CycleConf. Uh, we found the need to handle something called pool data. Um, and I can link you the discussion. It's a huge discussion. Great. But the, the, the basic example is uh, we want to support math.random in CycleJS applications. Okay. Math.random is a type of function that, you know, it's not a stream of events. You don't have a, a bunch of events of random numbers coming. Uh, you just have random numbers and you can pull them out, right? Pull them like every, every, every time you call math.random, you give no arguments yeah. and you get a new number, right? Yeah. So you can think of that as a source yeah. where numbers are coming from, sure. right? Uh, in the same fashion, we also have the use case for uh, get UUID, so unique identifier. Um, and that's also a function that has zero arguments, and you get a new number every time. So it's, it's basically a source of data. Sure. 
but it's not a source of data that lives on its own. It's a source of data that uh, makes data only when you request for it, right? Okay. So currently, the way that we we do that in CycleJS is that we just put it as code, um, and it won't appear in the in the graph as a source of data. It just pops up from nowhere. Okay, I see. And and that's what we don't want. We want everything that is a source of data to be visually represented as an actual source node in the yeah. graph. And so the, the links that Andre talks about, I'm going to include in the notes on my website. So to give a quick overview of how the CycleJS DevTools works, I have, I have the notes in my, on my website, but the, the, the key insight is that when, when you have a CycleJS app, um, you can go, you can type window.cyclejs to see the data structure, the core data structure that, that CycleJS knows about. And it'll give you all the syncs for the app and you, that those things are traversable. You can kind of walk the tree up and that's how you get all the other nodes. And, and, and that's basically how they visualize the, the tree that you see in the CycleJS DevTools. And I, I have links explaining all the important functions and the links to them on GitHub in my notes, which you are more than welcome to check out. Um, Andre and I talked about a few other things. Um, so we talked about how, if I was building stream seats, how I could go from a graph data structure of a CycleJS project to code, like how, how you'd go in the other direction instead of going from code to the graph, how do you go from the graph to JavaScript code? He mentioned in this context that they're thinking about creating a, a domain-specific language that's like a subset of JavaScript that limits its expressivity, which is actually something that Andre and I have talked about in the past because he, he, taught, he mentioned how even if you write the const keyword, it's not truly a constant because if you, if you create a const object, you can still mutate the keys of that object. So if you truly want immutability in JavaScript, there's a ESLint file that he, that he linked me to that, that, that truly uh, makes JavaScript almost Haskell-like in its purity, its immutability. And so that's the sort of DSL type language he's imagining for CycleJS. So uh, what seemed the obvious question to me was, well, so then isn't that basically Elm? Like what's the difference between CycleJS and Elm if CycleJS isn't Cycle JavaScript, it's a Cycle domain specific language that doesn't allow side effects. And he had a really great answer. So the, there are, it, it's subtle, but, but there is a distinction. So the first is that CycleJS has first class streams and you can do combinations on streams in very clear, explicit ways. And that's not as clear and explicit in Elm. Elm that has like a runtime that takes care of that stuff for you kind of invisibly which isn't the same. So that, that's one major distinction. The second major distinction is that Elm has callbacks. You basically pass functions. You, you give your user interface elements, you give your buttons functions that then are called when, when the, but, the buttons are clicked. So I think technically it's no longer callbacks, but you give an action to, um, to your buttons on click of attribute. Uh, but in rea but it's basically just the action is just filtered to a function, so it's it's similar to giving a callback. Uh, the the key point is, 
the, the same data structure that has your view code also has your handler code. It, it's coupled in this way that in CycleJS it is not. In CycleJS, it, the events are clearly at the top of your application as the sources, and the user interface is clearly the output of your application at the bottom as the sync. And of course, you may, want, you may then ask, well, how do you refer to a button at the top of your application? Um, and, you know, this is the one place that CycleJS has, uh, you know, has to kind of wave, wave, wave its hands. You refer to buttons and everything by IDs or by classes up at the top. So that's how you get around the cycle problem. The cyclical nature of you, you have a... Uh, a da data streams that produce a view and then mute, like interacting with a view mutate the data streams with, which then mutate the view. So the way you get around that is you refer by reference to those things by their name and then down below you, you name, name certain things. So I don't see, it's, it's not as elegant as I would like, but I don't see any real problems with it at this point. We talked a bit about NoFlow, which Andre had pointed me to about like maybe a year ago the last time we talked. Uh, he he doesn't think that NoFlow is relevant here for the way he wants to build the CycleJS DevTools as IDE, but I, I do want to spend a full day with it, maybe more kind of like how I did with with Eve and other tools, but most but Eve was the one that I really kind of stuck with, even though it felt buggy. Um, and then um, I kind of pushed Andre's vision for what, what it would look like to build an app in the CycleJS DevTools as IDE, particularly with like your HTML, like how do you add a button to your to your app how do you add a fold or a merge to the streams and he conceded that yes while you really would be able to edit your app in the CycleJS DevTools at the end of the day at the end of the day you'd still have to type the code you'd have to type formulas you'd have to type your HTML and and he really thinks that that's kind of the most efficient way to go about things if you have a formula if you have some HTML you just type it which you know makes sense to me and I think would be the way that I initially build out stream sheets you know with even the formulas would be like visual basic formula type things would be equal sign then you, you kind of type out your formula so so that, that's reasonable um, and then and he mentioned that he would he would want it to really go to link back to your code so you would you'd be able to import code into the CycleJS DevTools IDE and then you'd mess with that code and it would it would then go ahead and modify the code in your text editor which sounds like magic to me like how do you sync between those things, but he, he, he didn't seem to think it was going to be too crazy difficult. So then I ran Andre through the problem I was trying to solve with stream sheets. Uh, to repeat it again, I want to make it easier to write CycleJS apps, not just debug and understand them. And the idea was to have this visual spreadsheet metaphor thing. And he said he he knew what I was talking about. He said that sounds a lot like an earlier version of Eve. That he well he thought one that the programming model sounded like Eve, and then two this particular idea sounded like something that they had done in the past. And so he sent me a link to that, which is definitely something I'm going to look into ASAP. And then he he also mentioned that he really likes the idea of a visual editor for CycleJS because you know the way he described it is that. It can, strain, it can constrain the thinking in a positive way. Instead of just a text box where you can type anything, it would say something like, 
where is the data in your app coming from? Is it, do, you, is you, do you have data coming from a server? Are you going to need to send requests to a server? And it can help you construct your application through a series of questions. Um, and you know, this, this to me, this sounds great, but at the same time, I understand the feeling of dread you may have of like a WYSIWYG wizard guy that like asks you, like, you, know, ask you questions to set up an app, because we've all had to do that, and, and they've been terrible. Uh, so obviously we wouldn't want to do that. I think in principle, it doesn't have to be terrible, but I guess that remains to be seen. So, okay, so then he walked me through some of the um, metaphoric challenges I'm gonna have with spreadsheets, uh, particularly how um, there's, there are two kinds of streams. So there are values that change over time, for example, your age, and then there are events, for example, your birthdays. And so it's clear, why, it's clear how your birthdays are a series of discrete rows in a spreadsheet that, that, are pop, that populate that spreadsheet as they happen. Um, but your age, it's like you know every nanosecond you get a new age. Um, that doesn't really make sense. And so the way Andre is solving that, and it's kind of the way he solved it with math.random as well, is with this concept of a signal. Um, and so a signal kind of is a function of uh, it's a function from time to a value and so you, you can think about it as producing these values every nanosecond and then you can sample that signal by some event so you have a signal you combine it with an event and you get a stream and so you could sample your age every button click or you could sample your age every number of seconds that's kind of, and, and that, that will give you a stream of your age every event. And, and uh, like, so I think that he's working through right now in Psycho.js is thinking about how do you make the distinction for new users between signals and streams? Um, do, do you necessarily have to immediately convert signals to streams before you can do anything with them? Or can you use signal combinators on signals, and then you know later down the road can convert them to streams. So he's, he's thinking about those sorts of questions. Uh, my my intuition is that having these things, signals and streams, which are so similar, but but different, will be ki killer for beginners. Like learning stream processing is hard enough on its own, and then to throw another thing in there is it's it's like it reminds me of how React has both state and props, and it's just like the most annoying thing ever. So I would love to see them resolve that in a way that is intuitive. Uh, so um, I guess we will see what Andre and crew comes up with in that vein at some point soon. Uh, he also encouraged me to reach out on the CycleJS Gitter. Uh, he says Nick and himself and all the other core team are on there all the time responding to things within minutes, basically. So um, if I run into issues, I'm sure I will be on the CycleJS Gitter. And last but not least, let's talk about my next steps with research. What I plan to do over the next two weeks or so. So there are two obvious next steps. I could continue with the Brett Victor deep dive or begin a visualization of the CycleJS DevTools data object as tabular spreadsheets. And um, but before I talk about those, I, I went ahead and, and brainstormed other things I could do with my time just to make sure that I'm, I'm not uh, at a local maxima, but at a global maxima. 
So I, I looked at my futureofcoding.org slash ideas website and I saw there were a few blogs I could write. I saw there was like a widget library that, that uh, I, th I think would be a cool thing to build. Um, and, I, and I also decided that it wouldn't make sense to do any other research um, on my links page other than into Brent Victor because of how well the Alan K deep dive went. So anyways, I came up with these two other options, but I kind of discarded them. They, they, were, they were really straw men to begin with. Alas, so I'm going to put a pause on the Brett Victor deep dive and go ahead and start prototyping a visualization of CycleJS data as tabular spreadsheets. So I started to think about how I could do this in code, but then I realized that that is not the level of abstraction I should be working at. I, now that I have a sense of how this could be possible in code, I need to think about the metaphor. The metaphors. So looking at the Xtream documentation. Xtream is the stream combinator library that Andre created uh, to work in combination with CycleJS. There are only 26 core stream operators, which is part of the reason CycleJS is so amazing. You know, there are very few things you can do. Uh, it's very, very few primitives. So it seems like the next step is to create pictures, either by hand or on the, on the computer, of uh, like metaphorically how you would do that action in a spreadsheet and see what happens, see if, if you can do all 26, if, you, if like, you know, if, which ones are troublesome, if the whole metaphor breaks down, who knows? It, it seems like the quickest way to stress test this metaphoric prototype idea. So that's where I'm gonna go next. And, um, and then if that goes well, then I'll start, uh, if it goes well on paper, I'll probably do it on like a Photoshop tool and, and publish those screenshots, and maybe even release that as a blog or f of some sort. And then if that goes well, then I'll then I'll go to code. Go to code probably yeah soonish. And if at any point I get stuck, I'll I'll either like reach out to Andre, or um, or go back or go back to the Brett Victor deep dive or some other prototype. So that's kind of where my head's at now. I, I I'm feeling really good about this prototype, and I'm excited um, to begin you know making things happen. Um, and part of why I feel excited is that Andre is available for, like, for the next foreseeable future, so if I get stuck, I can, I can get him on the phone right away and, and get unstuck quick. So the only thing, that, that the only real roadblock in the way that I can see is either if the idea just isn't gonna work and I run into a, a core block, um, which is fine, I just move on. Um, but I guess uh, a bummer would be if I run into a block where PsychoJS isn't quite expressive enough, and I have to like wait for them to make some core language decision before I continue. But I don't, I don't foresee that happening. So, um, given that I spent basically the entire day today talking to Andre, planning out my next research steps, recording this podcast, editing it, I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to have time tomorrow to do more research. I'm going to have to do what I plan to do this afternoon, tomorrow morning. So tomorrow is a, is it a day of no research, and then I'll, I'll be back researching. Wednesday, I'm actually skipping Thursday, so Wednesday is particularly long, and then, and then I'm, I'm back Friday. So, so we'll, we'll get some of these, these, these pretty pictures I promised you on, on Wednesday and Friday. And that is it. Thanks so much for, for sta staying tuned through the whole, this whole uh, scattershot episode. I, I hope it wasn't as much of a pain for you to listen to as it was for me to kind of get my head in the right place to record it. 
Um, and if you got lost along the way, I, I sincerely apologize. Please, please check out my website. I think it's a little bit more organized, so uh, I think it could help make your, your head a little bit less jarbled like, like mine is right now. Uh, talk to you all soon. Bye.